And if this is your first time, there is a visitor card. It should be in the pew somewhere in front of you. It's a QR code, actually. And you can use your smartphone to uh, scan that, and you can then answer just a couple of quick questions for us. And then also you're able to contact us if you have any questions about our ministry. We would certainly love to hear from you. And if you do have more questions, you can find us at gracenc.org. And uh, there's also a contact us button on the website. You're certainly welcome to contact us through that as well. If you're listening online, we welcome you. And thank you for joining us as well this morning um, here at Grace Baptist Church. I want to invite you to find Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We are hitting some highlights through this book. Again, we are not studying each and every uh, paragraph throughout the book. We're hitting some of the main themes throughout this uh, book of the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And uh, we're going to be looking at the latter part, or a few verses later on um, in this chapter than we looked at the last couple of weeks. But I want to begin by going back and looking at verse number 1, because this is kind of the verse that we are building off this morning. Solomon here, who was David's son, who was king of Israel, over combined unified Israel at the time, he writes this in verse 1, he says, "...a good name is better than precious ointment." In the second part of that verse, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. And we've already studied these verses, but again, we're going to look later in this chapter and understand a little bit more about Solomon's instruction regarding this. But I want to say, by way of introduction, is that this first verse of this chapter tells us a very simple truth, that a good name, and by that he means a reputation a character, someone who has a Christ-like attitude, a Christ-like character, a Christ-like reputation, building that is far more valuable than collecting ointment here was a very expensive, very extravagant possession. Solomon says it's better to have a good name than it is to be wealthy. And the second part of the verse may sound odd, But he is saying that the time of our death, when we physically pass from this world, our character, our reputation, it's settled. You can't change it. The good news is that as you are living and breathing, you have the ability to develop a godly character. Now, by your being in a church service this morning and worshiping with us or watching online at home this morning, I would would assume that you are here at least partially because you have a desire to develop a good reputation, that you would like to develop a character that reflects Christ, that you would like to look more and more like Jesus. You would like to look more like your Savior. Now, if you're like me, you can probably think back through your life, and there are likely a few, probably not maybe many, but at least a handful of people that you would look over the course of your life and you would say, that person influenced me tremendously. That person had a huge impact on my life. And they were likely, I'm assuming, talking about a positive influence, by the way, not a negative one, but those that have influenced us positively to become more like Christ, I I would assume they had a godly reputation. They had a good name. There was something about them that was worth emulating. Now, here's my question for you and for me. Are you worth emulating? Now, ultimately, we want to emulate Christ. 
He's the only perfect example that we have. But God has given us people, human beings, people that we interact with on a daily basis to serve as a model to help us become increasingly like Christ. When people hear your name and they see your character and they know your reputation, are you someone that people would look at, not for your glory, but for God's, to say, I want to emulate that person? How would you answer that question? I was told this morning, we had mentioned last week, that a name is something that is very important. And I mentioned last week that hardly any of us have ever met a person by the name of Jezebel. Well, it came to my attention that, in fact, five girls in 2019 were named Jezebel. Since 1994, there have been 265 little girls named Jezebel. Another name that I hadn't thought of last week that someone uh, mentioned to me after the service is the name Judas. Well, in, the, in 2019, there were eight baby boys that received the name of Judas. And since 2001, 84 little boys received the name of Judas. Interestingly enough, prior to 1994 and 2001, respectively, zero people had that name other than the biblical characters. Now, I would suggest this, that it's very likely that increasingly our culture is biblically illiterate, and so it may be that over time those names will lose to some degree the stigma that those names bring, but still, 265 since 1994, 84 since 2000, that's pretty small. Why? Because those names are associated with ungodliness. So what's in a name? A lot. This morning, what I want to do is get very practical with us today. If we want to build a character that reflects God, I want to give you today four important practices to implement in your life. By the way, these are not mine. They didn't originate with me. They come directly from Scripture. Solomon gives, us to, give these, gives these four practices to us later on in the chapter. Let's take them one at a time. Look at verse 9. All the way down, after the discussion we looked at last week on building a good name for yourself, Solomon says in verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. You can say it this way. Anger resides in the heart of a person with a bad reputation. Solomon is telling us that if we want to develop a name, a godly reputation, we need to control our attitude. Particularly, we need to control our anger. Just a few days ago, on February the 1st, this took place in Plains, Pennsylvania, there were some neighbors that were outside, and they got into an argument. They got into a tiff. And as this argument escalated, it resulted in the one neighbor going to his home, bringing out a couple of firearms, and shooting some 15 to 20 rounds and killing his husband and wife neighbor. Now, I want to just give you their ages. I won't give you their names, but the husband and wife was, his, his first name was uh, James. He was 50. Lisa, his wife, was 48. They were both shot and killed. The man who shot them and killed them, his first name was Jeffrey, and he was 47 years old. I give you their ages to say they should have, been, they should have known better than this. 
I mean, you may ask yourself, what would lead somebody to go home and get a gun and shoot 15 to 20 rounds at their neighbors and killing two people? By the way, the man who did the shooting went home and promptly shot and killed himself. Now, we understand that the guns don't kill anybody. It's the sinner that uses the gun to kill people. We get that. But you may ask yourself, what was so important? Oh, it was a big deal. Sarcasm. They were arguing over where to put the snow. They were shoveling after their huge snowstorm. Big deal. You're going to shoot and kill somebody over that? You're going to let your anger get so out of control that you're going to go home, get a weapon, and kill somebody? Now, don't get self-righteous on me. Don't do that. Because I know what you're thinking. Oh, I would never shoot anybody. I would never pull out a weapon and take somebody's life. I wouldn't use a knife or any other weapon, for that matter, to kill someone. Okay, before you get too happy with yourself, you do realize that you are armed and dangerous right now. You have a weapon on you right now that can kill, maim, destroy, and ruin lives. Did you know that? It's sitting in your mouth behind your teeth. It's called your tongue. And our tongue is very, I guess, good, efficient at revealing the anger that rests in our hearts. And Solomon says very bluntly, when we give in to anger and anger dominates our lives and it resides in our hearts, you're a fool. I didn't say it, Solomon did, and thereby God said it. When we allow anger to ruin us and to control us, and we lash out at people using our words and using our actions, we are, in fact, proving to the world that we're fools. James puts it this way in regard to the tongue before we pull apart the verse for just a moment. James chapter 3 He says this, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. He says in a few verses later, verses 8 and 10 of that same chapter, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and our Father. We look very religious and very pompous. And with it, we curse people. Those who were created, James says, in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now, there's another interesting dynamic to our anger. Our tongues reveal it, as James says. But if we back up half a verse into chapter 8, or chapter, uh, verse 8 of the same chapter of Ecclesiastes, notice and remind you that Solomon says at the end of this, he says, the patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. You know what makes you angry the most? You are an impatient, proud person. Notice the connection. 
He says it is better to be a patient person rather than to be an impatient person. And then he leads right into this, well, don't be quick to be angry. I went to get gas the other day, and I'm sitting in my car waiting my turn, and I'm at Costco, and this one young lady's right in front of me, and she pulls out and around and around this other guy, and there's another guy. He had been sitting there before she got there, and he was sitting there at the gas pump, and she fills her gas. It would take three minutes, whatever it takes to pump gas, five at the most. She pulls around him, and he's still sitting there. And I noticed the, the gas nozzle wasn't even in his vehicle yet. Well, I start pulling up, waiting for him to pull out so I can pull all the way through so the person behind me can pull where I am, and he hops out of his car on his phone. He hadn't even pumped his gas. He hadn't even gotten out of his car yet. So he took five, six minutes of a conversation to just sit there wasting everybody's time. I mean, five minutes. That's worth losing your mind over, isn't it? Now, I didn't, by God's grace. I laughed at him and thought, you're a rude dude. That's what I thought. But how often have I failed at that one? Somebody costs me 32 seconds in a line, and I'm ready to curse them. James says, out of your same mouth, you were singing praise songs when you went into the store, and a few minutes later, you're cursing that person because they cost you 30 seconds of your life. You're impatient, and you're proud. And so Solomon says, we better make sure that we understand this connection when we get so angry and we get so frustrated and it spills out in our words or it spills out in our actions. It reminds us that we are just impatient, proud people. And by the way, our pride gets in the way when somebody corrects us or they make a little comment to us that we don't particularly like. Or someone has the nerve to maybe, you know, tell me that I'm wrong about something. And our pride just gets in the way. And rather than responding with grace and mercy and the love of Christ, we respond with anger. We respond with ugly words. Another thing that feeds our anger, by the way, is our expectations. Expectations of how the world is supposed to work. In fact, Solomon's going to tell us later on in this text that what is crooked, you can't straighten. In other words, this world is God's, you can't change it. It's God's world, it's not yours. You're, you are not the God of this universe. And yet, we carry expectations of our circumstances, how life is supposed to go. We carry expectations of how people are supposed to behave. We come back, we come at life with expectations of how our wife or our husband is supposed to live. We have expectations for everybody, and then they fail us, or our circumstances fail us. Life doesn't go the way that we think it should go. We become impatient and proud, and what spills out of us is anger. And yet, in verse 9, Solomon is pretty blunt. You need to be aware of anger. There's no excuse. No excuse for displays of anger. Now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you have lost your cool because you became impatient? I'll raise mine because I've done it. How many of you have lost your cool, lost your mind, made an absolute fool out of yourself because your pride was pricked a little bit? Oh, I'm raising my hand. 
How many times has someone disappointed you in the expectation you had for them? Got to raise my hand again. I don't know how many times you raised your hand. I'll raise mine, all three, because I will tell you, my family's here on the front row. They will gladly tell you, I've made a fool out of myself on more than one occasion. Because our impatience and our pride and our foolishness just spills out. And Solomon says, when this resides in your heart and it lodges there, you are a fool. Notice these words, by the way. He says, if it is in your spirit and if it lodges, it lives in your heart. These are very important terms because they talk about this deep-seated anger. And by the way, sometimes it's concealed. Sometimes we are concealed carriers of our anger. We don't display it, but it's, it's there, lingering under the surface. Now, we have to also understand, biblically speaking, that anger is given to us as people created in the image of God. We have been given anger as an emotion. It's a God-given emotion. In fact, if you're paying attention throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, I won't read all of this, but if you go back later to chapter 3, he tells us that there is an appropriate time in life for certain activities to tear down. And for instance, verse 7, he says to tear down. There's a time to sow, a time to keep silent more often than we practice, by the way. Time to keep silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Yes, there is a time for those things, but they're rare. They're really rare. And so, this emotion of anger shows us something is wrong with us. Something is wrong in a relationship. Something is wrong in my soul. I'm not responding to life correctly. So, in and of itself, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, the commandment there is be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Don't make a fool of yourself and blow up, yell, scream, punch holes in walls, throw objects at people, call them names, go online and destroy their character for the whole world to see. Don't do that. You're a fool. You're being foolish. He says, be angry, but don't sin. It's not an excuse to sin against God. It's not an excuse to respond in such a way that would dishonor God. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. That means don't ignore it. Don't brush it under the rug. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't ignore the anger that you have and give no opportunity for the devil. Now, I think, I think we all would have to admit that anger is a very strong emotion. And so when Paul's warning here is do not give opportunity to the devil, it's one that has to be greatly considered because how often has the devil, proverbial devil, I would argue it's just your sinful flesh, but how often in your flesh have you sinned against God in your moments of anger? You know, Scripture talks a lot about anger. And I think it's repeated many, 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 many times because it is a common struggle for man. Just like all of our other emotions that are God-given, they can very easily get out of order. They can very easily lead us astray. Let me just read you a few verses, a couple of examples of this. In fact, later on in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this, do not take heart all the things that people say. Okay, stop right there for a minute. Okay. Stop being so sensitive. 
Stop taking every little thing that everybody says and taking it to heart. He says, don't do that. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. And then I love verse 22. Because your heart knows how many times you yourself have cursed others. Stop with the self-righteousness. That person cursed me. So what do you do? I curse them instead. That's what? He says, you know what? Your anger leads you to the place when you respond in anger to something somebody says about you, you then respond by sinning against them. He's like, your anger leads you to feeling, again, what makes it when somebody curses you, what makes you mad about it? You are proud. And you're too good for people to talk about like that. So you just do it to them. As if that's somehow, well, what that makes is actually, I would label it as pharisaicalism. I mean, I'm going to call it what it is. Outright pharisaical. So you can't talk about me and curse me, but buddy, I can do it to you because I'm justified in my anger. Really? Let me read you a few more. Proverbs 14, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Proverbs 16, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Proverbs 29, an angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgressions. Psalm 37, verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. James 1, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Can't. One of the most particular verses, and I want you to turn here with me, and I want you to find Ephesians 4, and I want you to look at verse 31 for a moment. This issue, because some of you, I know, I know how people think. Some of you are saying, I have an anger problem. I have never hit anybody. I have never cussed anybody out. I have never punched a wall. I've never thrown anything. I, 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 Pastor, I'm telling you, I don't have an anger problem. Be careful. Be very careful. Because Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, in, in my opinion gives us a verse of Scripture that describes the many different angles and aspects of anger. Now, I think sometimes as, as bi- biblical Christians, Bible-centered Christians, as exegetical preachers of the, of the Word of God, we sometimes parse words, maybe at times a little too carefully or too precisely sometimes. We make nuances that maybe aren't there. I, I'm convinced these nuances are here. And what I want to share with you, I've shared before, but I think it bears reminding. And I want to look at just a few of these words. We won't take time for all of them because we want to move on in just a moment. But listen to Ephesians 4.31. If you're there, I want you to follow along. I'm I'm reading from the ESV on, on this verse. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I'm just going to look at four of these words. Again, we won't take time to look at all of them. I want you to look at, first of all, this word bitterness. Pekria in Greek. It means bitter. A bitter root that produces 
bitter fruit, resentment. Here's why I bring this word to your attention, because you don't have an anger problem. Okay, listen to the particular nuance of this English word translated as bitterness, this Greek word, pikria, that is an inner attitude of hatred. Inner attitude. I may never tell that person, man, I hate you. I may never curse them, but it's in here. It's an inner attitude of hatred, a smoldering resentment or grudge that produces a sour spirit. So you may think you're hiding this anger and this resentment and this bitterness, and you're not using your tongue to lash out. You're not using your fist to punch anybody, but everybody can tell by your sour spirit that you're bitter. This is, this is this inner disposition of outright, sour, resentful, I have a grudge against you, I hate you, I am angry with you, I am bitter with you, I resent you, I'm just, I'm just godly enough to not tell you. So we think. Here's another interesting word, the English word wrath in the ESV, it comes from the Greek word thumos. This word means passion, heat. This is an angry boiling up that subsides very quickly. This is a word that pictures explosive anger, outbursts of rage. These are people that we say, well, you know, they just have a short fuse. One little spark and there's an explosion. Yelling, screaming, whatever happens. I don't know what happens, but there is this explosion of anger. And it subsides relatively quickly. It's kind of short-lived. But in its, in its wake, there is this wreckage of humanity that are hurt and injured. Oh, I just have a bad temper. I just got to blow off some steam sometimes. Just got a short few. That's, that's thumos. That's anger. Paul says, you need to put that away. It's not okay. You don't explode on people. You don't just share your mind with people. Whatever, whatever words you use to excuse it, stop. Don't do that. Now, here's my particular form of anger. Maybe I've lost you so far, but here's mine, I'll readily admit. I am more of the orge anger, which is described here as the English word anger. This is a natural disposition or movement to agitation of the soul. It's a violent emotion of indignation. Here it is, a quiet anger that simmers. Doesn't explode. There's no harsh words, but it's hot. It's simmering. It's the little pot of sauce on the back of your stove that's hot and it's just bubbling a little bit and the lid is on it. But it's, I mean, it's on fire. Eventually, it's going to blow. And when it blows, it'll be ugly. And it'll look a lot like thumos. But it's not this instantaneous anger that just comes on. No, no, no. This is just there. This simmers. Waiting for the right moment to lash out. Or to use your words to destroy someone. 
The last word I would call your attention to in that verse is the word malice. Kakia is the Greek word. It means ill will. Desire to injure. Wickedness that is not ashamed to break the law. It is the culmination of anger, the culmination of thumos, the culmination of storge. This is anger that says, I'll get you. That man who shot those two people on that morning here in February, that was malice. Led him to outright aggressive action against someone who had sinned so egregiously against them by putting their snow in his yard. Now let me ask you an honest question. What makes you angry? What is it that puts you over the edge? Do you typically get mad when things don't go your way? Do you get mad when somebody takes longer than they should have to give you your order at Chick-fil-A? Do you get angry when someone has the audacity to correct you or to challenge you in any way? Ah, it's intolerable. Don't you know who I am? It's pride. Count the cost of what anger is costing you because anger destroys relationships, destroys harmony at home, divides husbands and wives, divides parents and children. Anger leads to irrational thinking and foolish decisions that bring very destructive consequences. Anger, my friend, is destroying your reputation. When I was in seminary, one of my professors said, and this has always stuck with me, he said, the first time, the first time you lose your cool in front of your church or you lose your cool in front of your deacons, go home, write your resignation because you're done. You just lost your reputation and you will likely never get it back. I will tell you, I have been in moments in ministry where those words came back to me so powerfully that it kept me from being foolish. So maybe the next time you're tempted to blow up, maybe you ought to stop and just ask yourself, what's this going to do to my reputation? How's this going to influence my name? I want to share a second practice that you can implement in your life that will help you build a reputation that honors God. It's found in verse 10. Solomon says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For what is not from for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Solomon says, You better beware of glorifying the glory days. It seems like sometimes we remember history in a very interesting way. It's easy, so tempting to glorify the past. Let me remind you of something. The good old days, the glorious days, they were not as glorious as you remember. And even if they were, guess what? They're gone. Forever they're not coming back. 
As we look back in time, the world seemed to be good and right. Didn't when we were living through those times, but they look back in hindsight and retrospect. Ten years from now, people will look back even at the crazy time we live and say, man, those were the good old days. Time dims our memories, changes our perspective. And here's what Solomon is getting at is God does not intend for you to live in the past. Oh, we have to understand that as Christians, sometimes we glamorize, romanticize certain periods of time. I mean, how many times through the years have I heard believers say, man, I just wish I lived on the early church when they were so on fire for the gospel. Yeah, they were being killed for it. I mean, we romantic, or like the Reformation. Wow, it would have been so great to be Martin Luther's neighbor or friends with John Calvin. They went through horrible things in their lives because of their faith. But we romanticize it. We want to believe that somehow we would have been a different, better person had we lived in a past time. The point is dwelling too much on the past can prevent you from enjoying today. It keeps you from enjoying what God has given you in this moment. In fact, there's some illustrations, some very interesting illustrations about people of God who romanticize the past. Let me give you just one quick example. Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, we find these words. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. This is the Exodus generation under Moses' leadership coming out from Egypt after God has miraculously delivered them from the oppression that they were experiencing in Egypt. Listen to what they said. They said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt the, the, that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Okay, there are so many things wrong with that statement. But one being, here it is, they're sitting around the campfire with the manna that God has given to them. Like, man, remember the good old days when we were back in Egypt? We had fish to eat. I mean, it was free. We just got it. They just gave it to us. It was wonderful. Vegetables right out of the garden. Fruit. I mean, we had all these things. Man, wasn't that the good old days? You were slaves. Living in oppression. God delivered you from that. Yeah, but that was so good. Our minds, and somewhat I think by God's grace, that we remember the old days good because we remember them through a lens that sometimes is not perfectly accurate. But I want to remind us of something very important, and that is this. Our job, as some of us are increasingly getting older, our job is not to pass on our preferences, our particular practices, our particular applications to the next generation. That is really not all that important. In fact, in Psalm 78, the psalmist says, we will not hide them from our children, but we will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and the wondrous works that he has done. Verse 6, that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and rise and tell their children that they will set their hope in God and do things exactly as we did. That's not what it says. 
It says that we will tell their children so that they will hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep His commandments, not live life how I think it ought to be lived. The church in America somewhere at some time took a picture of a church of like 1979 and said that's what church should always look like. That, is, that our, is that our ultimate call? Well, those were the good old days. Were they? Or is it that one generation passes to the next and our job is to pass to the next generation the eternal truth of Scripture? That, that's our job. You know, as we age, it is, and I'm past the 50-year-old mark, and so I, I will say that it's definitely increasingly tempting to not glorify days that are long gone. In fact, I think we would all agree this morning that the 1980s was the greatest decade in the history of mankind. The late 70s and 80s, I mean, that was the pinnacle of humanity. And those of you that did not grow up in the golden age of humanity, God's grace and mercy be upon your life. And by the way, I'm pretty convinced that if you didn't grow up in the 70s and 80s, that God still has a purpose for you. I really believe that God's mercy can still be upon your life. I started thinking about the good old days. I mean, think about what the 80s gave to us. They gave us Walkman. They gave us members-only jackets. Yes. One of my personal favorites was Trapper Keepers. Swatch. Mixed tapes we recorded off the radio that became the soundtrack of our life. Rubik's Cube, who can never forget one of the greatest inventions of mankind. Atari 2600, some of us spent too much time playing that. And it's easy to glorify those days. And at some level, that's okay. It's nostalgic. It reminds us of our childhood. But the nuclear weapons drills were not so fun. I remember hiding under my desk in the 1980s thinking to myself as a little boy, like, and what is this going to do against a nuclear bomb? I kind of hoped it would land on my head and just end it quickly was what I was thinking. Our memories are not always accurate. And our criticism of the present is usually only partially correct. More importantly, in our quest to bring back the good old days, we neglect to recognize the blessings of today. I did a little exercise, and I'm going to reveal my deep, dark, horrible soul to you. I did a little exercise. I started thinking about what, what is it that makes that time so nostalgic for me? These are just some observations. I'll give them to you quickly. Everybody seemed a lot less stressed out and a lot less self-conscious back when I was a kid. Here's how that seeps out in my thinking. You know, today people are just way too sensitive. They take things way too personally. My wife was telling me yesterday one of her cousins got flagged by Facebook for bullying because she made a joke about her and this other lady. They're both very uh, vertically challenged, let's say. She made a joke about the fact that they were both short and she was flagged for bullying. Come on. 
I mean, the 1980s was the last decade without the internet. So how does this play out in Jay's mind? Well, you know, today everybody just spends way too much time online. Partially true. But we played outside where there was grass and trees. Cartoons were only on Saturdays. We couldn't binge watch anything because the show only came on once a week. Music videos only came on Friday night. Today, you know, everybody just want to entertain themselves all the time. We had to wait for weeks to find out who shot JR. Here was one I particularly like. Kids were far less supervised when I was a kid. Curfews were set by the dimming street lights or the setting of the sun. You went in the house when you couldn't see your hand in front of your face anymore. That's when you were supposed to go in. Now, in hindsight, we probably could have used a little more, <laughs> a little more uh, oversight. But here's how I think sometimes. You know, over, overly protect the parents today. You guys are just producing a bunch of snowflakes. Maybe that's true, but we have to be careful that we don't judge today's world as far, far, far different than ours was. Let me just give you a couple more. Instant gratification was not a thing. You had to wait for your birthday or Christmas to get whatever you wanted. Today, it's just a click away. And I'll share one more. Telephones were something you left at home and didn't worry about. Well, you know, today they're like a leash. Can't leave home with that. Where's my phone? Got to find my phone. Where's my phone? Where's my phone? I, I, I don't know. I kind of missed this one. I wish I didn't have this thing. But it's, see how easy it is to go from, man, I remember when the cord was only from here to the piano and the whole family could hear what you were talking about. Those were the good old days. Not everything today about technology is bad or wrong. In fact, I'm kind of glad for it, aren't you? But you see how quickly our sinful minds go to the past and things have to always be like that. You know what Solomon says? If you think that way and you get wrapped up and worrying about the glory days and griping and complaining about today, Solomon says, uh, you're a fool. And quite frankly, there's nothing new under the sun. We just live in these perpetual cycles in a sense of humanity. History repeats itself. That's a statement because it does. And so why in the world do we expend precious energy worrying about something that we cannot bring back or we cannot change? Why would we do that? Solomon says it is foolish to ask these questions. It's, it's not wise. Don't live there. And then very quickly, let me give you the last two. They're, they're connected to these others. He says in verses 11 and 12, he says that you need to build a good name for yourself by pursuing wisdom. Rather than giving in to anger and other negative emotions and living controlled by your reactions to life in verse 9, and rather than being consumed with and preoccupied with the past, he says in verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is the, is the wisdom 
Knowledge is that. Wisdom perseveres uh, the life of him who has it. Preserves, rather. Excuse me, I was stumbling over that word. It preserves the life of him who has it. He's saying, look, money to some degree provides us protection, but it's wisdom, the, the applied application of life that brings us to the place that we experience the protection that only God can give to us. Now, in the second service, you guys often get the bonus material, and I'm going to give you some bonus material that the first service did not get. Count yourself lucky. Notice what Solomon says all the way at the end of this chapter, all the way down in verses 28 and and 29. This, This shows us how rare this kind of wisdom is. It shows us how rare a person of character and a person of a godly reputation is to find. Listen to what he says in the final couple of verses of this chapter. He says, I have found none. One man, one man among a thousand I found. But a woman among all these I have found not one. Now, before you blow your mind, ladies, I'll explain in a minute. See this alone. I have found that God has made upright, man upright at the time of creation, but they have sought out many schemes. Solomon is basically saying this. He's saying finding a person of character is a rarity. His picture of saying, I've only found one man out of a thousand and no ladies. He's not saying that women are more sinful than men. That's not what he's saying. This is a This is a wisdom statement. He's talking about the rarity of finding someone of character. We also understand that, and I don't have time to uh, unpack this this morning, but in Solomon's life, he surrounded himself with pagan women. So, of course, he didn't find anybody of a godly character. And you can look at 1 Kings chapter 11, and you can read through. He went after this pagan person, this woman who hated God, this person who hated God. That was on his foolish decisions, not theirs. And so when we think about this wisdom, Solomon says we have to understand that this is a very rare find. I think as believers we ought to be in that small percentage, don't you? And then finally, I would share with you this fourth practice. It's found in verses 13 and 14. He says, consider the work of God. Consider God for a moment. I alluded to this verse already. Who can make straight what, has, what he has made crooked? In other words, you cannot undermine or change what God is doing and what God is going to do. You're not sovereign. He is. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. He says, look, there are days in your life, times in your life that you are going to experience prosperity. There is also times in your life that you are going to experience adversity. The latter part of verse 14, God has made the one as well as the other. They're both from the hand of God. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Very simply, Solomon is saying, let God be God. Choose to rejoice in God. Celebrate during those times of blessing Rest and trust in His sovereign care in the times of adversity. But if we are going to live a life that builds a good name, a good reputation, we have to live each and every single day considering God. Now let me ask you, in your moments of anger, how often do you stop and consider God? 
How often, when you are glorifying the past and wanting the good old days to come back, do you stop and consider God and say, you know what, God has a plan and He's just working out His plan? How often, when you are about to make a foolish decision and behave like the masses that live foolishly, how often do you stop and consider God? Maybe that's the heart of the problem, isn't it? We don't do that very often. So I leave you with a very quick summary. If you would like to build a name for yourself, a reputation that pleases God, I implore you, implore you to practice these four practices. Control your attitude. Live in the present and praise God for the life you're living today, not yesterday. Pursue wisdom relentlessly and consider God every second of every day. Implement these four practices. My dear friend, you will build a name, a reputation that is worth emulating. Not because you're great and wonderful, not because you're special, but because God will be glorified when we live like this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for these moments to just share these verses and even some of the applications that go along with them. Lord, may we be believers that do stand out rightfully, that we would be like the one among a thousand that is standing wisely, considering God, keeping our anger and emotions under control and not living in days long gone. Lord, I pray that we would be a group of believers that is building individual names, individual reputations that bring glory to your name. God, thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. We can't do any of this without you. We thank you, Lord, for the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. And you have a wonderful day.